Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Warbach. This episode is sponsored by my membership community called The Exchange. The Exchange is a membership website that has group practice business development resources. It has pre-recorded trainings every month, live Q&As by myself and three other experts in the field so you can get your one-on-one questions answered, Facebook live trainings, accountability groups, and expert interviews. We've got a ton of resources and new things are added to the library every single month. Learn more and sign up at www.members.thegrouppracticeexchange.com forward slash exchange. See you in there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange podcast. Um, Today, I have Casey Compton of Mindsight Behavioral. Um, Everyone probably already knows who Casey is because she's sort of a superstar when it comes to (laughs) growing a group practice. Um, It's slightly crazy how much you've grown in um, how short of a time you've been a group practice owner. So hi, Casey. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I just want to start with a wow factor. So tell those that may not already know, although I think it's very few people listening that don't know you, um, about you and your group practice, and then um, just about all the things that you do for group practice owners as well. Okay, so we are um, we are kind of like a considered a multi specialty group here in Kentucky, and um, for us, you know, we we stay all within the behavioral health realm, um, but we do provide a wide range of services, and so we try to bring on clinicians that have their own niche and own specializations, and then we market in the community to that. Um, so we started back in 2015, officially in October. And um, it was me Wait, and one other. Is it coming up? Is your, yeah. is your anniversary coming up? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. I, actually, I think it. I think it is today the eighteenth. Yes. Yeah, I, it might be today or yesterday. I can't remember, but yeah. So well, I'm so excited that I get to, I get to record <laughs> you on your thirty year anniversary. Congratulations! Yeah, I, thank you. I didn't even realize that. That's just how crazy it's been. But. Um, yeah, so we started in in uh, 2015 in October, and we started with just two clinicians, and um, knew ultimately knew that we wanted to scale to a group practice, but really didn't have a timeline or um, an end goal to it. It was just let's just see where this goes, and let's put the right systems and processes in place, and see where it takes us. And that's what we did. And um, first year, I think we ended up with like maybe we ended the year with about 12 clinicians. Um, maybe. And then now in uh, three years later, we're, we're right at 80. So we've grown quite a bit and we do take insurance. We're an insurance-based practice. We take also take Medicaid. Um, so we do have a diverse group of, of staff. We have master's level clinicians. We have um, um, bachelor's level providers that can provide targeted case management services. We also offer something called peer support, and it's where we can hire um, um, high school people with a high school diploma um, who have been through the counseling and treatment process and who have overcome something in their life. And we put them through a training program, and we can actually hire them to work with our current um, clients, and it's called peer support. So it's kind of just more of a supportive type of role, and that's been really great. Um, and then we also have support staff and we take interns and we have a pharmacist on staff and he does a lot of medication consults and things like that. And then we just brought on a nurse practitioner. So that's kind of how our team is set up and designed. Ooh, you brought on a nurse practitioner. That's going to be a fun addition. I I love, I love having, having that in my practice as well. That's exciting. Okay. And so on top of that, cause you, you just don't have enough to do. You also help group practice owners kind of like how I do. So what do you do? Tell, tell them about that. Yeah. So I started doing some consulting, um, not really on purpose, but now it's on purpose, but it didn't really start as being on purpose um, for about a year, I think. And um, I typically like to work with group practice owners who have 
um, I don't want to say problems because that sounds really negative, but I do like to fix things. And so um, just through the experience that I've had so far, I tend to like to work with people who already have something established, whether it's gone wonky or what, it doesn't matter. Um, my strength is more in that and implementing the systems and processes and working with people to try to maximize their profit margins. That's really what I enjoy. So um, we're, the listeners are very lucky today, since that's your area of expertise, um, that's uh, conveniently what we're going to be talking about yeah. today, which is awesome. um, systems, or you like to call them processes for larger group practices. So, so this episode is really geared more towards the larger practices, um, and you're getting a little bit of both my brain and Casey's brain when it comes to um, what we put in place and some tips that we have for what made our group practices each successful. I'm sure um, listeners are going to get uh, a variety of uh, responses because we probably run our groups a little bit differently, which I think is kind of awesome. So um, that's what today is all about. And um, let's sort of just jump in um, and talk a little bit about kind of what um, systems or processes you are finding to be the ones that sort of helped catapult you into such a, a larger practice in such a short amount of time. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the processes that you have going on that seem to play, have the biggest impact, I should say, on the success of your group. Okay. So that's a really great question. <laughs> it's hard to, it's <laughs> hard to, one thing. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to pick the one thing. Um, so I'll just give it a shot, but I, I, it's going to be a toss up. So one, you have to have, you know, your your wheels and your gears and everything all have to be turning well. I mean, otherwise you're just you're just crazy all the time. So I think just our, our overall office system, like the the flow that the clients take whenever from the first phone call into the practice to um, their actual first session, that system is is pretty well um, streamlined and that just makes things a lot easier. So that's important, but I almost want to say that our hiring system might be the most important. Um, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing. There's no tricks, or there's there's nothing um, all that special about it. I don't think. But early on, um, especially in my community, I, you know, I would think about it all the time. Like, how can we be different? What can we do that sets us apart from all these other practices? Why would people want to work here? And I've always just had this theory that if if <laughs> if I monopolize the clinicians in the area, then the, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like, because where else are people going to go? And so my goal from the beginning was to get all of the best clinicians I could find. Yeah. Um, because that's one of the things that we had struggled with um, from the beginning. We never had an issue of getting referrals. Um, we always had way more clients than what we could see. And so I really put a lot of my effort into recruiting, um, retaining staff and training staff. So just um, I think the key to that is having someone that is responsible, whether it be yourself or um, in my case, I have an HR person, um, my crazy HR lady that does that. And so um, she's really good at screening people. We try to hire the right people so that that reduces our potential turnover. Um, and then training those people in the systems and the processes that we have in our practice so that when they come on, it doesn't disrupt the flow. Um, is there... so? Something that I found to be really helpful in the recruiting process is um, I have they call it the concept of the ideal clinician, kind of like the ideal client. Mm -hmm. um, and I have the all these sets of um, non-negotiables and, and things that um, would make the group practice continue to be successful if if this you know if this or the next clinician um, met these certain criteria. Um, is there something that you because you said um, it's the quality of the clinician that is really you're looking for the best of the best. How are you screening for that? Or is there any kind of, is there something specific to your group practice that you're looking for that um, makes it easier to weed out those that are the best of the best from those that might not be? Because obviously our industry is kind of weird because we can't like watch them do counseling first yeah. and then be like, you're a good, you're a good clinician. We'll, we'll hire yeah. you. That's so kind of, um, we, we have a, a unique 
issue in that we have to um, really screen really well yeah, and, and so that we know that we're getting the right clinician. So you mentioned the best of the best is what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. How do you screen to that? Um, so the system that I use is not foolproof. I do make mistakes. <laughs> Sometimes I'll hire people and then I like, I just put my head down and I'm just like, I shouldn't have done that. I knew better. I'm so glad um, you're saying that first off, yeah. because I think people think that, um, the larger and more successful a group practice, uh, is the less likely it is that they're making mistakes and that's not the case. So I'm glad that yeah. you're saying that for all of our listeners here, no matter yeah. how big or small you are, um, as a group practice owner, you're still going to make mistakes. Oh yeah, definitely. We do. I mean, it's, I think it's just in how you recover and learn from them. It happens all the time. Um, but you know, my weakness in the hiring process is probably feeling sorry for people sometimes. Like I try to give people the benefit of the doubt if they haven't had a job in a while, you know, in my, in my mind, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I can, that's, there's probably a reason they haven't had a job in a while, but so that'll get me in trouble. But I like to use the ideal team player concepts, the humble, hungry, and smart. That seems to fit pretty good into our um, culture and our practice. So we have, um, we use some interview questions from that book and that, that really helps take the, the feeling part out of, cause you know, normally I would just interview someone and if I like them, I would hire them, but I don't do that anymore. Um, a lot of times the people that I do like, I don't even, I don't hire because they don't fit within our humble, hungry and smart criteria. Um, what's that? What's what book is that based off of? Cause I'll link into that. Yeah. It's the ideal team player. Okay. I'll put that in for yeah. listeners. Ideal team player, humble, hungry, smart. I like that. Yeah. And it's great because you can even Google it and there's a PDF that is printable and um, it has all the interview questions on it for people. So we use that. Um, And there's other things we kind of pepper into that too. Like, um, is the person trainable? Do they have a good attitude? Are they critical? Because if they are that, you know, the, the work that we do in Kentucky, you have to be very flexible. You have to be very positive. Um, I look for people that are go-getters. I don't want people to sit in the office and whine and complain that their clients know show them because when I say, well, what are you doing to keep this from happening? Or how are you trying to prevent this? And they just stare at me. Like that's not someone that I want. I want someone that feels like, Hey, I can take ownership. Like I'm responsible for my own success and not just putting all of that onto me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big one. Huge. Probably. Yeah. I, I, um, when I do tra- my own trainings with, with group practice owners, one of the things that I mentioned with the ideal clinician concept um, is for me and my group practice that it's um, less about clinical skills, although clinical skills is obviously very important, but um, based off of just the brand and the culture of my group practice, it's more important um, that, the, that there's a fit in terms of um, connection, collaboration, personality, uh, investment. Um, we have a strong um, my group practice, uh, well, I should say it's me because I put that together, but um, has a strong emphasis on giving back to the community. So we give back financially um, and we give back in time investments. We do a free speaking engagement every month, like across the practice, not everyone. So one person, um, which always leads to referrals. So it's not, you know, and they get paid for it. So, Um, but, you know, I look for people that are not just wanting to come and do the work and leave, but are invested in like being a part of a family. And um, that's been like the biggest learning um, for me is what is it that I really want? Because clinical skills is, is trainable and we don't take on um, provisionally licensed. Our, all of ours are uh, very established group um, clinicians. So um, the idea of being a good clinician is, is likely already there, um, but is also trainable. And so I like that you bring that up. It's um, that, um, that it, they have to be humble, hungry, and smart um, because I can see that that not none of none of those three things has anything to do with clinical skills, you know, um, and it has more to do with a fit with the culture of the practice. And I think that's where people get hung up on um, is that they have people who are great clinically or great with their clients, but suck in the <laughs> in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. I I think whenever whenever I first started my group practice, <laughs> I was like. I had this little idea of what this was supposed to look like and how the hiring process was supposed to go. I had this um, 
it was basically like a test pretty much. I mean, I would interview them a little bit just to kind of get a feel for their personality. And then I would send them off and I would give them a blank treatment plan, a blank note, and just a little paragraph of some, you know, just like a clinical summary of a client. And I would say, go fill it out. And you know, one of the things that I would base my decision on was how well that they did their documentation. And I don't even do that anymore. Um, We have, since we have kind of become more large in the state, I had to divide up my team or my staff into teams. And so we have six different teams and we have team leaders. So one of the things I do now is um, even after they're interviewed, and if we kind of give them the go ahead, we give the team leader this person's contact information and we have the team leader talk to them too, because um, I still will not hire anyone that I might like them and they may be a good fit for one team, but Mm -hmm. if they're not a good fit for the team that they're going on, then I don't hire them because it just, I mean, it just can, I've seen how it can disrupt the whole culture of a company just bringing on the wrong person. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles. If we take, um, finances aside, because obviously finances for us, uh, a new group practice tends to be an issue. But um, if you put that away, the biggest thing that I see is that people are having the hardest time hiring uh, quality clinicians, but all, not, not only that, but clinicians that fit in with their group practice culture. And um, the biggest issue I see in that is that group practice owners don't know what their culture is or what they want exactly. their culture. Yeah. 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 And that's so they- Right on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they end up hiring people that they like, which is something I've done in the beginning because you think, well, as long as I like them and they like me, then they'll do what I ask. But that's ne- <laughs> never the case. Um, yeah. And so it's really, you know, I guess this idea is the goal of it is really to break that down and first know um, what your practice culture is going to be so that you know who you need to hire that can fit into that. Yeah. And don't compromise that. You know, in the beginning, I I say all the time that I hired the best clinician that I've ever met, really. Um, She was my first clinician and that was the best thing I ever did. But then the worst thing I ever did was following her. I hired some people that I compromised on because I needed, I needed clinicians and they wanted jobs. And, um, you know, it took us a while to recover from that. And, we have staff that are still still with us, and um, it was funny last night. We have a like a closed Facebook page for for our staff, and that's been that's been fun. So, kind of gives the people that are in some of the outer line communities still feel like they're a part of the team. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the clinicians last night had posted a selfie of our billing lady sitting in her office. And, you know, they were just kind of going, talking back and forth through there. And she was just like, I love you. <laughs> and I was, you know, I'm not a real touchy feely kind of person. So I was teasing her a little bit. And she was like, she was like, CEO, just, just be happy that the fact that your staff has overcome some, you know, cause she was there through some of the craziness and she was like, and we all love each other and it's wonderful. So just be happy. <laughs> yeah. like, you know what? That's true. And, yeah. and that's, yeah, that's actually awesome to be able to look back and see that. Cause I think, um, just in being, I've been in a group practice before, before I started my own thing. Um, and I, I've seen and talked to a dozens and dozens of group practice owners who have had this issue of feeling like they had to let someone go or they made a bad hire or someone bred toxicity in the group and they felt like they weren't going to be able to recover. Um, that is possible. And I think every group practice owner at some point will have that happen. And it's just a great learning experience. It doesn't feel good at the time. Um, I know for me, I just wanted to shut it all down at that time and be like, I'm done. I'm done. Hand yeah. off. <laughs> Closing the book on this chapter and move yeah. along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you can sit through it, um, you usually come out in a, actually a better place because you learn shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it it also takes the people that are there and the people that are the right fit. It, it bonds them. And, you know, I feel like I walked through the halls of our office the other day. I don't, we have a two story office and I'm so busy during the day when I'm there, I just try to go on upstairs and get my work done. So I'm not downstairs a lot. And I just happened to walk down through there and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is awesome because they had their um, offices decorated for Halloween, like their doors were decorated, the whole, like you could just tell that they were having fun and um, just really, um, I don't know, just, just working together and enjoying their job. And that made me feel good. So I want to 
ask you another question based off of kind of where you're going here. Tell me, because I think this fits in with our systems theme today. Um, I think as a large group practice, you have to have in your set of systems, you have to have something in place that doesn't directly lead to you every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously in your case and in, and in my case as well, I can't be in charge of all of the clinicians and, and admin staff anymore. And I think part of a really good system is having people that are in leadership positions in your group practice. Talk a little bit about the leadership positions and support systems that you do have mm-hmm. um, so that people can get a sense of, and I'll bring mine up afterwards, um, so okay. people can get a sense of kind of um, how, you know, the fact that these systems work in your practice probably plays, is, there's a large part is played on the fact that there's other people and not just you making sure that these systems all are happening. Right. Yeah. So in the beginning, um, like, like most people, I did everything. So, um, I did everything. So from there, I tried to, in my mind, think I'm going to bring people on, I'm going to train them and I'm going to look for potential. And when I see that potential, I'm going to invest more time and more energy and more money into these people because, um, I wanted all the people that started with me, if they were loyal and they were a team player to be able to move up in the company as the company grew. So it started with just me and then I hired, um, uh, I think I hired just like a a front desk person. And um, from there, we just kind of started building out. And um, so every opportunity I got, once I hired on a couple new staff, I would promote one of the ones that had demonstrated some form of responsibility or leadership. And now um, our leadership is kind of structured like... I'm, I, I try not to be anyone's direct boss at all. Mm-hmm. So um, I have two employees. I have a, an HR director and I have an office manager. And really, those are the only two employees that I supervise directly. So they come to me. Everything else is kind of structured in a way that they have point people. So like um, the support staff all go straight to either the HR director, depending on the issue, or the office um, manager. So it's just one of the two. Then all of our clinicians have a team leader. So that's their first point of contact. The team leader's job is to just um, make sure everything's going smooth, um, just help solve little problems, just to kind of field um, a lot of the silliness that happens sometimes. Um, and beyond that, anything that goes beyond the team leader, it all really goes back to HR. Um, that's not how my ideal setup is going to be. And that's not going to be how ultimately it, it is. But for right now, that's, that's where we're at. Are you changing things because of clockwork? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have changed a few things. Because of clockwork. So yeah. have we. Um, yeah. So how our, our system works is that I have a practice manager who most people know is my mom. She does everything, billing, um, uh, the EHR, making sure accounts are all accurate, um, and she does our payroll and uh, tracks retention and lets my clinical director know. So then I have a clinical director. Actually, let me go backwards. Then I have a receptionist and she, um, my mom or the practice manager is her person that she goes to. Mm -hmm. Um, Receptionist does benefit checks and reception work, answering phones, scheduling intakes. Um, Then I have a clinical director who I've had literally since uh, the beginning. She was my second hire. Um, And after I got my third hire, which was about a week or two after her, um, uh, six or seven months later, I promoted her to clinical director because of just who she is. It was was to be for her. Um, And so I, I like to say this because people who are new in group practice, um, quickly find out that they either don't want to supervise or aren't good at some sort of thing, um, which we aren't good at everything. We cannot be good at it all, um, in our business. Um, but they feel like they can't afford to have someone like a supervisor, clinical director. I did it with, uh, four people, myself being one who she didn't obviously need to supervise, um, herself who she didn't need to supervise and two other people who she actually could supervise, which was my first hire. And then my third hire, Mm -hmm. um, I just paid her for one hour of clinical director work per week. Um, which covered the other two people and and some odd and end stuff. And then obviously as the group practice grew, now she's pretty much full-time clinical director. Um, so she, she, it's always been her as the person in charge of all the clinicians. And ever since we started, so um, we have two locations. 
And she goes back and forth between both locations and my mom, the practice manager does as well so that the clinicians at the other location can have, you know, get, get them without having to email them. They get them in mm-hmm. person. Um, but we're, um, we just added a third location and we're in the midst of um, negotiating. This is my main office. This is kind of our headquarters. Um, we're negotiating taking over the whole first floor, which would be about 20 offices for this space. Um, and so after reading clockwork, we've kind of adjusted some things um, because I'm only one degree off from my clinical director. So a lot of times people just come to me um, and I'm doing things like this and yeah, a lot of the metrics and tracking for my group practice. So yeah. Um, what we've done, um, and this is after talking with Mike when he was like, you need another degree remove removal. And um, I was telling you about the book, um, Radical Candor, and this idea of rock stars and superstars is you want to know which um, staff of yours are rock stars, meaning they're like rock solid. I always think of my husband as this. He's a Chicago public school teacher. He's really amazing. He's very loyal, um, dependable. He does his work really good. And um, the principal just never has to worry about him. He just does his shit. And then um, that's a rock star. They're kind of like a rock solid in what they're doing. They have no plans to move up or out. They, he's been a teacher at that school since he was an intern or whatever wow. teachers you call an intern. No, it's a different word, something else. But ever since he was in college, when he had to do like a year of training, he did it at yeah. that school and he waited for a position to open at that school. He's just so like yeah. predictable yeah. <laughs> in that way, but rock solid. Um, and then there's the superstars, which are usually the group practice owners, right? They move up and up and up um, and then end up... Uh, having their own businesses. And so the idea of the superstar is that you want to be able to um, help them continue to stay happy. And so usually the people that are the superstars um, need some sort of leadership position. So the mix of that book with talking with him, um, we decided on site supervisors. So now we have a site supervisor for this location, one for our Saugenash location and one for our old Irving location. And then once we expand this location, this one will actually have two site supervisors because it's going to be too big. Uh Um, And then they report to our clinical director. um, And my clinical director will then really just be focusing on providing support to the supervisors while the site supervisors do, you know, they're, they're communicating with staff on if there's retention issues or um, helping them, you know, work through any goals that they have. Cause we check on like personal and uh, professional goals each year and see how the group practice can help them with that. And so then the site supervisors really are kind of like almost like the mini owners of the space, you know, yeah. um, which then lets me be able to stay focused on here. Um, and that's kind of how we have that. And then we also have an onboarding coordinator, which is one of our clinicians who's just knows everything about our business. She does, she knows how to ask for time off the right way. She knows what to input into the EHR. She just knows everything. Um, and so because she's a superstar type and mm-hmm. wanted, you know, likes to grow, we ended up giving her that position. So when my clinical director hires someone, um, it then gets um, moved down the line to our onboarding coordinator and she's in charge. She's essentially like a supervisor for the first three months where she trains them on everything from EHR, all that stuff. Um, and then provide support for those for those first three months that they are seeing clients. And then um, once they are successfully onboarded, they transition back to um, the site supervisor or whoever's really yeah. in charge. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. We're thinking about a privacy officer just for the HIPAA stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, we've done that too. The, yours, um, your system for organization is very similar to ours. Yeah. We had to have a little bit of a different component just because we have so many support staff. So I have a front desk coordinator. I have um, a client care coordinator. I have two billing coordinators. I have an office manager. I have an HR person. I have a social media coordinator. And I have um, a community outreach coordinator. Are all of those people in-house? Yes. They are. See, I have a a lot of my support. um, So I have like... um, uh, personal assistant and social media manager and all that, but those are in the form of their 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 own businesses, and they yeah. provide that service for my business. Right. No, mine are all mine are all in house, um, but I kind of see the clinical director piece for me has been difficult because I you know I, I picked someone out early on one of my first couple of hires, and over the course of time, I just realized this is not the person that I want you know, having this much control in my business. And so for the last couple of years, I've been watching and trying to find someone that I think is going to be a good fit. And until then, um, 
we don't have a clinical director, but I think that is an important piece. But I see, um, you know, when you have a large group practice, having it divided up into a couple categories and we have a flow chart that works well just for visual people. Yeah. Like I, we kind of have an office um, group, like office staff, um, a development group, people that are always helping to grow. And these would be our team leaders and our marketing people. And always they're like the bigger picture people that can come up with new ideas and implement new projects. And then we have all of the other employees, like the clinicians and the case yeah. managers and all that. And um, so, yeah. And I think too, just, just having a system, but then also allowing yourself to be flexible and just saying, if you don't have the right people to create that system at that time, it's okay. Yes. Yes. I love that. And um, being okay with a system that changes. I think it's important that once you put a system in place that you don't just not look at it anymore. Um, And so we're always looking, we recently, so we have um, a a workflow document and it's just um, similar to what you were mentioning. It's a visual and it splits in half um, administrative and clinical. And then it it kind of goes down the line of, you know, tasks that happen and in what order it happens so that people, clinicians and admin can see from a client's first calling to them terminating what is the flow of things that's happening Mm -hmm. and in what order, where do things go? Um, And I think it's important to have something like that, even if you're, you don't technically have any admin staff to do the admin stuff. Someone is, it's usually the clinicians or it's you Mm -hmm. as the business owner. Um, But it does make it easier as you, as you get larger then and hire those support staff to know so that they know and the clinicians know who's the one that's doing the benefit checks, who's the one that's actually inputting the intake paperwork or the documents? Who, when should the clinicians go to the admin for certain questions? When are the admins supposed to go to the clinician for like no-shows? Do the clinicians get to choose? Do Does the admin um, uphold it? Like, because clients will call and be like, I got charged a no-show fee. And they usually call like the billing person. Is in your practice, does the billing person have the ability to uphold that? Or do they defer back to the clinician and say, you know, it seems like you no-showed. You, you might want to talk to your clinician about that because they're the ones that, that put that bill in there. But to have some kind of workflow has made a huge difference in the reduction of emails and mm-hmm. questions and a reduction in um, people doing different things. And I think that's, that's where the disaster can happen when you're larger yeah. is that you have, you know, 80 people doing a system slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And so this, yeah, this idea of a workflow document is really, is really smart. And we have ours on a, we have a training page yeah. um, that all new people go through and that has that in there. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think uh, systems wise. You've mentioned, and I don't know if what you, I think you call, I'll call it the same thing. Do you have a dashboard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, yeah. What, is, what are you using yours in? Um, I use it in Google Sheets. Okay. So do I. Oh my yeah. gosh, I need to see yours when we're off of this one day. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we have a, a Google Sheets dashboard as well, which took me months to put together because it pulls data from what my admin has uh-huh. and it automatically in real time. Does yours do that? And like in real no. time, sends the data over to my sheet and it's all just graphs. So mine, I can just look at it and it's all graphs. So, um, okay. So, no, your dashboard is more complicated than mine. Okay. Um, um, no, that's okay. Cause I do graphs on some of my other dashboards, yeah. but like I may use, we may usually use them a little differently. So like I take mine, it's very simple. I only have like four things that I'm measuring on that dashboard because if I were to put anything else, my staff would probably have nervous breakdown. Okay. I think I have six on mine. Okay. Well, that's not much different. No. So I just divide it. So I take like a tab per month. And then um, I have, you know, like one, two, three, the days of the month up at the top. And um, I have the KPIs over on the side and I share it with all the people that are responsible for adding their numbers. So like um, it's shared with my billing person and my referrals person, my two billing people, my referrals person um, and my social media person. I share it with her, too. Um, but basically at the end of the day, I want to know how many tickets they submitted or how many claims they submitted, how many denials they worked, how many referrals they received, how many referrals they scheduled and how many referrals said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to partake in this. Um, so that's all my dashboard shows. Now I have others that I go, like, I can't just do everything I need from that one dashboard. So I do have other ones that are just for me that, um, like that are configured with graphs and 
um, like trend lines. And so like, like my clinicians, I have one for my clinicians that um, we put in their billable hours every two weeks and it graphs it. And then we can kind of predict where we're going. So I kind of use a combination of the dashboard, my profit first system, and just some other little supplemental things. But collectively, I can pretty much tell you what's going on in my practice just by looking at that. Yeah. So I don't think we're, ours are too far off. So we obviously do the profit first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a, a spreadsheet that kind of auto calculates once I put like the total revenue and it all auto calculates the profit owner's yeah. comp, all that fun stuff. Um, and then the dashboard, I have been on this kick um, and it's something that um, was inspired by Yvonne Noble. If she's listening, hey, Yvonne, she was asked, she has a large group practice as well um, in Seattle. And she was talking about just a system that takes all of your data from, you know, you have an EHR, you might have a email list and just different platforms that have different information and how to like have all of that information go into one place where you can just look at this, not have to log into multiple places, not have to go into different pages and stuff. Um, and there doesn't seem to be one that really does it all for everything. Um, but I'm feeling like I'm getting really close. I'm spending a lot of time, but now it's really getting, um, pretty close to as, as automated as I can have it. And so my dashboard, and I guess we're talking about dashboards because it's one thing that lets you know if things are streamlined well, Mm -hmm. it lets you see all of your important data for your practice that, um, a lot of practice owners don't even think of putting that information together. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many times and I'm sure you've had this too, where you're like, you know, what is your average revenue per month? And some will be like, um, I don't know. Or what's <laughs> your profits? And I don't know. Yeah, or don't. like how many referrals did you get this month? Or how many people called versus how many you did you actually yeah. schedule? And people are like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so we, I have a, my dashboard has at the top, uh, a retention calculator, which is what my, my mom does every quarter she checks the retention of all the clinicians. Um, and she has her own sheet for that. And, but I have in my sheet, there's a way in Google sheets to be able to take data from a completely different sheet and have it inputted into mine. So I don't have to like go into hers and look at it. It's just, that's the top of my dashboard. And every time she updates retention, I can see it on my end when she updates, updates it on her sheet. It, automatically updates it on my just send me some directions on that i've not tried that before yeah i'll i'll show you what it looks like it took me a while of googling to figure out the like the codes equal blah blah, to get it um but now i feel like i've I've got it down and it's kind of fun to do yeah and then under that i have um revenue uh and uh, revenue by month and it's something that i've had in a separate sheet um that a friend of mine made because I couldn't figure out how to make a graph that showed between because mm-hmm. we started in 2012. So it has all of our monthly revenue. So it compares by each month. It says January and it has like seven right now bars yeah. that show like the growth in January across, you know, across the years, seven years. But then you can also look at it in terms of like full years or yeah. by month. Um, and so that um, automatically every t- when every month when there's the revenue updates, it'll put in like in at November 1st, it'll put October's revenue in there and then it'll show up on my dashboard. Mm-hmm. And then under that, I have um, referral sources. And this is where my, um, and I'm waiting because we use intake queue right now mm-hmm. for our referrals. And I'm, I'm waiting there. They have a ticket in because they have a really awesome reports section. And in the report section, it everything is graphed based off of, um, you can do it by month, by day, However many people filled out the intake, our intake paperwork, we have a question that says, where were you referred from? And we, we know our main referral sources. So I have them all listed, um, you know, our, in, my insurance, my doctor, a, another therapist in the community, or I'm a returning client, um, or Google, Psychology Today, those kind of things, and then other. Mm-hmm. So they're forced to have to pick one. Um, and I'm, I've been really surprised with updating that because it's um, really shown me that um, our highest referral source is actually friends and family members and people in the community more than that's Google. great though. Yeah. That's even better. It is, but I, I would have, I could have sworn that like 90% are coming from Google and that's not mm-hmm. the case. But what, so with that right now, that's the only piece that isn't completely automated because they don't allow their graphs to transfer into Google sheets. So my intake person, when she transfers the, you know, the sheet over, um, she's the one that's inputting the demographic information into therapy notes. She just, um, she has a, a Google sheet where she puts a, a one, or a tally next to uh, whichever one they chose referral source wise. And it automatically gives me that data on my spreadsheet that says it's a bar graph um, that shows, you know, how many are from each referral source, which is nice. I look at that every month or so to see um, what the trends are. 
Yeah. And then I have an average rate per session um, calculator because we do take a couple of insurances as well. Um, I think it's important if you are, even if you're full fee or have like a sliding scale um, at all, unless you're full fee who never changes, doesn't do reduced rate, doesn't do sliding scale, nothing, and always charges the same amount all the time. Obviously, then you know what your average session rate yeah. is. But like your case, my case, and in I think most people's cases, even if they don't take insurance, they're sliding their scales or reducing um, every six months, I, and this is, I have to calculate this. It doesn't do it automatically. Um, I calculate how, um, how many 90837s for us is our regular session. Um, and then we base it off of insurance. So, um, if we see that we, we can do a note count report and it says like you had 500 9837s with Blue Cross and you had 700 9837s with United, which has a slightly lower rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it'll tell us like, 75% of your clients um, that you got payment for was with the higher paying insurance and only 25% was with that lower paying. Because if you take all the numbers and just divide it by two, you're not going to have yeah. an accurate, right? So it does that and it auto calculates. So all I have to do is I have to know what our total revenue for that six month was. I have to know how many were United, how many were Blue Cross, and then it'll automatically calculate. And my personal goal is to always make sure that our, um, our session rate Mm-hmm. increases every six months, even if it's by 10 cents, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that in there. And then the last piece that I have is the calls. So I have, it's mm-hmm. one, one graph that has multiple things being graphed in it. Um, but that comes from my intake person's uh, intake scheduler. So when she puts a new client in, uh, if she puts uh, S for them being scheduled, it'll automatically let my little sheet know that it was scheduled. Um, and then it calculates like how many people called in that month um, let's say like, I think last month was like 200 something. And then it said, um, out of the 200, how many scheduled an intake appointment with her? Um, and I have it based off of location. So it's like a double bar graph kind of, Mm -hmm. because we have two locations right now. Um, so it'll say like 58 from Edison park and 72. Um, and then it'll show like how close that, that bar is to the line graph that says how many total calls there are. But then we have a third line graph inside of it that says, um, of the people that scheduled, how many actually, how many actually showed up to that first appointment? Cause obviously there's a handful of people that call and schedule an intake and then never show up. And we want to make sure we can see, you know, how many of those people that actually say they will show up, do they show up? Mm-hmm. I think that's all, so all <laughs> that are on mine, but I'm, I'm having a lot of fun because 90% of it auto calculates. So I can just yeah. pop it in there and look at it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think because you you mentioned a dashboard before too, and I was intrigued. I wanted to yeah. see you know, what what kind of things you're calculating because I think that plays a huge role in my my um, decision for either hiring more people, adding extra locations, all of this stuff. I don't it know does. if you. Okay. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And with our dashboard, um, I love Google Sheets. I love creating yes. graphs. I love doing all of that. Um, and my dashboard was it was for me, but it was also more for the staff to see patterns because I wanted them to start like recognizing patterns. But the biggest thing that I use it for right now is looking for billing issues. So, you know, one of the things that was happening, we only we only had one biller and we take probably 20 different insurances. Mm-hmm. So that just convolutes a lot of things. And so like I put that's a lot of pressure on one person to not only make sure everything's submitted correctly, but to work all those denials. And I needed a way that I could look at the basic numbers and the basic revenue and know that we didn't have a billing problem because we've had billing problems before Mm -hmm. and our biller was so just overwhelmed at the time. She didn't realize it. She was just kind of in there. And um, I kept looking at the dashboard thinking, we got a problem. We have a problem. And everyone's like, no, we don't. Everything's fine. And we had a problem. So it helps me to identify problems early so that we don't have to go go into any kind of crunch mode or go into our savings to um, make payroll. Right. Exactly. I I love that idea. Um, Any other system that you have or that you are thinking about adding that... um, is helpful for larger practices. I'm trying to think if I have anything else. Um, no, other than, you know, just because I read Mike's book clockwork and it just caused all kinds of new <laughs> work for myself. Yeah. Um, um, so we ended up going back and like reworking or rethinking about our brand promise, which caused 
us to end up hiring for a new position, which is our client care coordinator. And that person is going to take over the previous referral coordinator's duties. And it's also going to add a lot more duties as well. But um, I do think um, having something for your employees that they can track their own metrics, because I do want people, key members in our staff to be aware of um, what's going on in the practice without having full access to all of my financials. So even, yeah, even if you had dashboards, like you said, for like sheets that different people in your company are responsible for maintaining and then pulling it all into yours is awesome. I love that idea Um, because I do want people to take ownership over their job. And I try really hard, like Mike says, not to micromanage, just tell them what the goal is and then let them figure out how to get there in a way that makes sense to them. And really, I think when you have a system and you have some kind of dashboard and accountability, it'll allows you to do that because you don't feel like you have to get in there and watch every single thing that they do because ultimately you know that they know what the goal is and you can watch their progress through that sheet or that system. Yeah. We, we recently put together um, team drives in Google. I don't know if you've seen the team drives Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how, so I have a team drive for um, the site supervisors and my clinical director and I are in that team drive, but it has, um, any metrics that they're track, they're supposed to be tracking, um, and important information that they need to know that we can then go into. Um, it also has like a task list of like who have they supervised and all that fun stuff, so that we don't have to email and ask. We can just pull, go into that team drive and see what they're doing in real time. And then we have the onboarding coordinator team drive where we can see you know who they're actively training at the moment and how far along they are. And then I have between my clinical director and I, we have a management team drive. Um, and then my admin and I, the, my practice manager, mom, and my mm-hmm. receptionist, and I have an admin one where we can see um, billing and administrative uh, tasks and spreadsheets and stuff in there that we can all then play around with. And I'm really Do you, go in, there, do you go in there as the account owner and set it up and then share it with them? Or is that yeah. a different process? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I set them up and it's nice because they let you like make a nice cover photo and it's, uh-huh. it's a, it's different than just regular drives that you share, like folders that you share. Yeah. Um, it's like a whole drive. And so anything you put in here, folders, doc, all of that automatically will get shared. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm having fun with it. Something that they just came out with, I don't know, like six mm-hmm. or four months ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't even looked at it or thought about using it until, um, maybe July or August. Um, and ever since then we, we have these, I have one for like, um, you know, a team drive that's for all the clinicians and I, and that has like just operations manual, employee manual, um, marketing documents, referral sources. Like we have a Mm -hmm. referral spreadsheet that people all have access to. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's been nice because it's nice and organized because before I had just 8 million different folders and now they're just in their own like actual drives. Yeah. That's awesome. I may look at doing that too, because I think I probably have 50 folders at least <laughs> in yeah. just one in just one drive so that would yeah. be a great thing yeah it was it was actually pretty easy to set up and it's nice because you can give um a certain and I think you can do this with regular folders too but it has a, a few extra um like advanced settings in there uh, mm-hmm. of like what how you share with them like what they can do with the information that you share um and it's a, a slightly just slightly more advanced than the actual like regular sharing of a fol- Google folder. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'll check that out. Yeah. Um yeah. and then for me the last thing that I just think of as uh, playing a big role in um my growth as a group practice is um support. Mm-hmm. So just having other group practice owners I have one or two um other larger group practice owners who I every once in a while just talk to, um, and it's, uh, you know, we bounce ideas off of each other. We can complain if we need to, and they know what it's like because they're large and understand that. Um, and I feel like that plays a big role in like helping in terms of the systems, because there's a lot of times where they're doing something different than me, just like you and I talking, we're seeing that we do things differently. Um, that can help us spark, you know, an idea for changing something in our, in our own practice. And so I think if, if you don't have a support person, that's a group practice owner, kind of in a similar stage or somewhere near your stage of group practice ownership, it, that really can be a lot of times the place where you can learn a lot, um, about changing a system that you have in your practice, you know? 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. I know whenever um, I joined a mastermind group about a year ago, and it was the first time I'd ever really done anything like that. And because I had tried to reach out locally to some people and everyone's like, no way, like, I don't want to talk to you because it's just this weird competitive thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I did join a mastermind group and if, if nothing else, it, like you said, it did just build a sense of community and support. So I, I, I just, I guess I would want people to, to realize what you just said that, you know, hopefully if you're hearing this, you're already in some kind of community because for me, the value that I got just out of the the community of the people that was in my group was way more than any particular set of information that I got out of the group. It was just yeah. knowing that there were other people that understood and that now a year later, I would truly consider all of them my friends. And that was, that was awesome. Yeah, that is cool. Um, okay. So if people want to reach out to you, how can they reach you? Well, in uh, one of my 15,000 email accounts, <laughs> uh, probably the easiest one, the easiest way to get a hold of me is um, my email. And my email is just hello at consultwithkc.com. That's the least convoluted email that I have. So mm-hmm. I tend to get those quickly and I, I, they don't get lost in the masses. Um, so that's probably the best way to get in touch. Awesome. And then what's your consulting website? Um, it's the same. It's consult with KC. KC com. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking yeah. an hour of your time out. I know as a busy group practice owner, that's like valuable time. So I'm, I'm, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom on um, how to have a large group practice and have systems in place that make that successful. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I've got me a little to-do list of things to look up based yeah. on some of the things you said. So, awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, you know, I'll be talking to you soon um, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye.